Could you turn in your Bibles to the Acts of the Apostles, Acts chapter 24, if you're using a church Bible, it's on page number 1723, 1723, Acts, Acts 24. Ananias, the high priest, along with uh, some of the elders of come down to where Paul is being held after he'd uh, been arrested. Uh, the Jews have presented their case to, uh, to Felix. And uh, we're going to break in uh, to the chapter at verse uh, 10. So Acts 24, verse 10. Then Paul... After the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, And as much as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. Because you may ascertain that it is no more than twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone nor inciting the crowd either in the synagogues or in the city. Nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offence toward God and men. Now, after many years, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation, in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in a temple, neither with a mob nor with tumult. They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me, or else let those who are here themselves say, if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council, unless it is for this one statement which I cried out standing among them, concerning the resurrection of the dead and being judged by you this day. But when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and said, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will make a decision on your case. So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. And after some days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now, as he, that is Paul, reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come, Felix was afraid. And sometimes you wonder why on earth do some translators, you know, put in a word that the old A.V. had, which I think was far better. <laughs> Felix trembled. Okay. So now, as he reasoned, verse 25, about righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come, Felix trembled and answered, Go away for now, while I have a convenient time. 
uh, when I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Amen. Now let's uh, turn to Paul's letter to uh, Timothy. Second Timothy uh, chapter 3. Second Timothy 3, page number 1826 in the uh, Church Bible. I'm going to read from verse 14 through to verse 2 of chapter 4. Paul, writing to Timothy, says in 2 Timothy 3, verse 14, But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. Amen. Well, beloved, I said uh, last uh, Lord's Day that we would uh, sit on these verses at the end of chapter 3 for a couple of weeks yet, rather than jump straight into chapter 4. Now, in doing that, I don't intend to enter into some technical discourse on the nature of the sufficiency of Scripture, nor on the doctrine of inspiration itself. Uh, This is familiar material to many of you. And my concern is not so much to go back over those principles and those truths, which we we know oh so well, but it's as with so many other aspects of our Christian living, it's simply sitting on this to remind you of these truths, to reinforce them, uh, reinforce you in them, and for you to be renewed in your commitment to them. Now, It's worth uh, reminding ourselves that the context in which Paul was writing to Timothy was one of uh, incredible confusion. The church was facing a variety of threats which were coming at it both externally and internally. Uh, From a human perspective, these threats were extremely challenging, uh, threatening the existence of the Christian church Indeed, it looked like there wouldn't be a church by the close of the century, first century, obviously. Uh, It was within this environment, not a very encouraging environment, but rather a very uh, daunting, perplexing environment, that this most unlikely servant's young Timothy was called to receive the button of responsibility from his colleague, Uh, his mentor, his father in the faith. Uh, There was incredible persecution which was unleashing itself against the church. There was, as we're told from 
uh, chapter 1, verse 15, there was a wholesale uh, defection on the part of many who were living in the province of Asia. Now, if that were not bad enough, Timothy was also aware of the fact that he was receiving what he was receiving from Paul was, according to Paul's understanding of things, uh, this was his swan song, as he says there in 4 verse 6. Paul makes it clear that he was aware that his life was ebbing away in this dingy dungeon in Rome under the shadow of an executioner's axe. Therefore, the pressing urgency for Paul was to convey to this uh, young pastor, Timothy, uh, in, an, in an environment of manifold confusion, uh, Paul is impressing upon him the absolute uh, clarity and authority and sufficiency of the scriptures. These were not uh, truths that were new to Timothy, but they were necessary for Timothy, even as they are for us this evening. You see, uh, here we are, and you don't need to be Einstein to recognize that there is uh, an immediate connection between Timothy's day and our day. Obviously, despite the obvious fact that we are removed uh, by some 2,000 years from the offense of, of Timothy's day. Uh, but nevertheless, friends, uh, you know, humanly speaking, once again, right at this point in history, does the church, it seems like the church, certainly in the Western world, trembles on the brink of capitulation. More pressing than at any moment uh, or any other issue that uh, we're facing at the moment is the, the challenge of pluralism and syncretism and all that flows from all of that. And when the church is tempted to take on board anything other than the uh, simplicity of the gospel and the sufficiency of scripture, then it will always be in danger of capitulation. It will be in danger of losing its missionary seal. It will be in danger of uh, losing its uh, evangelistic um, emphasis. You know, the desire to see believing, uh, unbelieving people becoming committed followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of that will begin to falter if we imbibe any of this nonsense that has been circulating today. The church trembles. On the brink of capitulation. We live, on, live under tremendous pressure. Uh, to capitulate. To cave in. To cave in to the idea that there is no unique revelation in history. In other words. Uh, Gia. And the belief of Mother Earth. Uh, that Buddhism. And, uh you know, the, the notion that Buddhism peddles and Hinduism, you know, all of that smorsborg of pluralism is actually, you know, people are saying that is actually the answer to the questions, uh, the, the pressing questions of society in the 21st century. Uh, we live at a, a time in which truth has been devalued 
and tolerance has been enthroned. And young men and women are growing up uh, in our churches with a kind of how-to Christianity, devoid of uh, a solid understanding of biblical theology, and they're basically trembling on the brink of capitulation because they haven't been adequately schooled in the teaching of the Bible to capitulate to the notion that there are many different ways to reach define reality, to capitulate to the idea that all formations of religious truth or religious experience are by their nature inadequate expressions of the truth to succumb to the notion that it is necessary to harmonize as much as possible all the religious ideas and experiences so as to be able to create one universal religion for all mankind. Uh, that's where we are today, and that, that's what uh, is being, you know, peddled and um, driven at, you know, one world religion. And the great challenge then is to hold to the sufficiency of Scripture, to hold to the sufficiency of the Word of God in a context that not only in the secular realm, but also in the ecclesiastical realm, is tottering on the brink of capitulation. What then is the safeguard in view of such a danger? Well, beloved, a renewed commitment to the sufficiency of scriptures. Because unlike other religions of the world, You know, when you take away this book and you take away the one about whom this book speaks, you take away the one whom this book introduces us to, you take away this book and you take away Christ, we're finished, we're done. We're left with moralism and platitudes and religious ideas and agendas and notions of the well-being of society, but we are devoid of authority. We are devoid of clarity once you uh, close this book. We have nothing really to say that nobody else isn't already saying. Therefore, the antidote to the threat from within and the threat from without is to be renewed in our conviction regarding the matter that Paul confessed to Timothy here in these closing verses of chapter 3. Now, what Paul does is simply doing what the Lord Jesus Christ himself had been doing. Paul is actually following in the footsteps of the Master, Particularly, for example, in that encounter between Jesus and the disciples on the road to Emmaus. You're very familiar with it from Luke chapter 24, verse 27. You know the two disciples, they have left, <coughs> they have left Jerusalem. Uh, they're downcast, they're depressed, they're disconsolate. They're heading down the road to Emmaus. And Jesus draws alongside them. They don't recognize Jesus at first. 
But they're saying to Jesus, you know, we, we thought that this Jesus was going to be the saviour. We thought he was the real deal. We thought that he was going to fulfill all the prophecies. We thought he was the Messiah. But everything has come to a dead end. He's lying in a tomb back in Jerusalem. And Jesus looks at them lovingly. And he says, oh foolish ones. And slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. And then verse 27 of Luke 24. Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In other words, to his followers, tottering on the brink of unbelief, he turned them to the Bible. He turned them to the word of God. To the absolute sufficiency of scripture. My beloved in the light of that. I want to say three things over the coming weeks. Uh, tonight we'll just. Uh, we'll see scripture. As uh, sufficient. First of all for salvation. And then it'll be. November. Before we're. Uh, and back here in the pulpit. On Sunday evening. Uh, but then we'll look in coming weeks at the scripture being sufficient for transformation. We're seeing something of that in Sunday mornings with our study in the fruit of the spirit. And then we'll go on and see how the scripture is uh, sufficient for proclamation. Now that's the direction of travel over the, uh, the next number of weeks. So firstly, scripture. Scripture is sufficient for salvation. Now to see this, we back up to Second uh, Timothy 3, verse 14, where he says, uh, but you must, remember he's saying you must in contrast to the imposters of verse 13. These imposters who will go from bad to worse, these deceivers who, uh, you know, deceive themselves and they're, uh, you know, they're, Individuals that are leading people away from the truth. You, Timothy, in contrast to those folk, you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of or convinced of. Now, you see, beloved, this is foundational. And the underpinning of this is on the basis of two things. One, because Paul says... You know, Timothy, from whom you have learned them. And two, because Timothy, you know what it was that you learned. Timothy would have been on the receiving end of all kinds of uh, spiritual instruction coming from the home that he, that he grew up in. The influence of a, a godly grandmother and a godly mother. And all the benefits that would have accrued from that would surely have found him in his early days learning the things that God had given to his people. For example, as it says in the book of Deuteronomy, you know, as Timothy walked along the road, uh, grandmother and mother would have been instructing him as he lay down and as he got up, he would have been learning the necessity of binding these things upon his heart. Having them written upon his heart and talking about them through the pilgrimage 
of his life. Paul had already mentioned to him about the benefits of a godly heritage. You know, a godly grandmother and mother. Something for which he should be tremendously thankful. But underpinning that which was conveyed to him is the very truth that was conveyed. That from childhood, Timothy, according to verse 15, you had known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation. The Scriptures are sufficient for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. They had been imparted to you, Timothy, and you came to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. What are these scriptures for? First of all, to make men and women wise on the salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, the Bible is a book about Jesus. From beginning to end, it's all about him. In the Old Testament, as we noted last week, that quote from Alec Mortier, wasn't it? Um, in the Old Testament, Jesus is predicted. In the Gospels, Jesus is revealed. In the Acts of the Apostles, Jesus is preached. In the Epistles, Jesus is explained. And in the book of Revelation, Jesus is expected. So when we go into the Bible uh, from the beginning... All the way through to the very end, we are encountering a book which comes to us in our foolishness, which comes to men and women in their lostness, which comes to folks whose minds have been darkened and blinded by the God of this age. And it's the scriptures that are able to make the dumb wise. It's the scriptures that are able to make blind people see. It is the scriptures that are able to make deaf people hear. And they are totally sufficient. We preach the word of God. And we are praying that the spirit of God would convict and convince of sin. The scriptures are sufficient for salvation. Because they talk about a savior. Jesus Christ. And here we are. A small group of people gathered at this point in time for the express purpose of making making known this glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Instead of going forth and proclaiming, I think sometimes because we we think we're on the back foot. We, we retreat. And it's, it's like York's Drift, isn't it? You know, with the, the Sulus just coming in wave after wave after wave. And we're just trying to, you know, hang on like grim death until relief comes. You know, Jesus comes over the horizon and delivers us. You know, the world is arrayed against us. We know that. The world hates us. The world doesn't see us as friends. Uh, The world doesn't believe what we believe. The world hates what we believe. The world hates the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's to this that Paul calls Timothy. 
And it's to this world that we are called also salvation through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to proclaim it. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Preach the word. Be instant. In season and out of season. So we have of not only apostolic an apostolic precept, but also have it in apostolic practice, you know, to be proclaiming this wonderful message of salvation from the very beginning of the Acts of the Apostles. You know, what do you have in the apostles? You have preachers. You have people who are proclaiming uh, the gospel. Men and brethren, we, well, we looked at, uh, we alluded to Acts chapter 2 this morning, didn't we, the day of Pentecost. Peter's preaching. And he says, you know, they, these folks are not drunk, as you suppose. That's not the case at all, he says. They're not drunk. He says, this is actually to fulfill what was prophesied by Joel, that in the last days... God says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. This is what you are seeing. And you see, Peter is saying, let me tell you what the Bible says. Let me give you the biblical explanation for this. And he preaches Christ to them. He preaches the Bible to them. And as a result of his preaching, what happens? The people are cut To their hearts. How do men and women get cut to their hearts? What cuts the heart? How you can cut the heart with a sharp tongue. And cut people to the heart. Like the words in the song by the beautiful South. Tongue tongue so sharp the bubbles burst. The bubble of romance. The bubble of marriage. The bubble of dreams. But the tongue was so sharp, that bubbles burst. It's over. Oh, the tongue can, can, uh, can certainly cut a heart. You can cut people's hearts as a result of emotional manipulation. Telling stories to induce tears, but, but that's all it will produce. It won't produce anything of lasting benefit. But beloved, you see that the sword of the Spirit... Cuts to the heart of men and women. And when that happens, they ask, what shall we do? And then we say, repent and be baptized. For the remission of sins. And then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Cut to the heart conviction. What are we supposed to do? Preach the word. Praying that the Spirit will convict and convince of sin. Cut to the heart conviction. What did that? What caused that? Peter. Peter who caved in when the wee girl asked him, Are you one of the followers of Jesus? And he starts swearing and cursing, you know, following that guy? Are you joking? You know, there, there couldn't have been anybody more surprised <clears throat> at the end of that sermon in Acts chapter 2 than Peter himself. 
When the crowd were crying out, what shall we do? And 3,000 people were added to the church as a result of the preaching of the word of God. No surprise then when you come to Acts chapter 4. Peter and John are called before the Sanhedrin. who are not uh, too well pleased at what has been going on. They're firing firing off a variety of questions at these two disciples. By what power are you doing this? In what name are you doing this? And Peter stands up, we are told, filled with the Holy Spirit, and he says, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you lot crucified by the way. And God raised him from the dead, and it's because of what Christ has done, this crippled man who they're in prison for, it is because Jesus Christ has worked in this man's life that he stands before you healed. This, this Jesus, the stone that you builders who thought you were so smart, the stone that you builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. What's Peter doing? He's preaching the Bible. That the scriptures are sufficient for salvation. That's why he's preaching the Bible. That's why he's quoting the Bible. Because the scriptures are sufficient. Not his ability to talk about the Bible. But his ability, his ability to simply proclaim the Bible. Can you imagine what it cost Peter to stand before this group of Jewish leaders? People who had come from the same background as he did in Judaism. Who were the people to whom he loved with a passion. That he wanted to see saved. And he says to them you know salvation is found in no one else. Because there is no other name. Under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Boys you must come to Christ. And that you see is the challenge of our day isn't it? Hinduism says that God has incarnated himself Many times. We say no he hasn't. He's only done it once. We can't both be right. Judaism says that Jesus was not the Messiah. We say he was. We can't both be right. Buddhists say if we would just clean up our act and do a little better. God will accept us. We'll reach Nafana. We say we cannot clean up our act. We cannot reach any paradise or nafana apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. God will not accept us on the basis of what we do. We can't both be right. Islam says that uh, Jesus wasn't the last prophet. It was Muhammad. We say no, he wasn't. Jesus is God's final revelation to man. Both can't be right. And so you see, friends, we are stuck with the exclusivity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in that essential truth that all of the sufficiency of Scripture is conferred. Doesn't Philip the evangelist do exactly the same thing with the Ethiopian eunuch? You know, who was doing that? Well, it was God who was moving. And God who was planning. And God who was uh, conflicting. Isn't God the one who, who moves? Isn't he the initiator? You know, 
The Ethiopian's reading the Bible. Why was he reading the Bible? Because God prompted him to read the Bible. About whom is this man writing? He asked Philip. He's talking about himself or someone else. And Philip began at that very passage from Isaiah 53 and told him the good news about Jesus. That's what our friends and neighbors need to hear, isn't it? What the folks in St. Helens need to hear in the open air. What the folks in Liverpool need to hear in the open air. What are, uh, those around us need to hear. They need to hear about Jesus. They need to hear the good news. This great gospel of our glorious God. Where do you find it? In the Bible. Sufficient for salvation. Now listen and follow this. In each case, in the Acts of the Apostles... The gospel was preached for its own sake. Or if you like, the gospel was preached for Christ's sake. Now, there's a subtle distinction here that I want you to notice. The gospel was not preached primarily as a means to an end. The gospel, for example, was not preached in order that the culture of Ephesus might be changed. The gospel was not preached so that the temple of Diana would be pulled down. The gospel was not preached so that Christian people could have a better lifestyle for themselves as a result of the benefits of the gospel flowing uh, out into the culture of Ephesus. Oh, beloved, the gospel was preached for no other reason than that men and women might be saved. And as a result of them being saved, individual lives were transformed, families were transformed, communities were transformed, and the culture was radically altered. Of course, there's benefits to the preaching of the gospel. We don't deny that. Is there a reason why so much preaching of the gospel today yields so so little, uh, well... Is a reason why so much preaching of the gospel yields so very little today? I, I think there is. I think the reason is because folk, folk have lost, or they're not convinced of the absolute necessity of proclaiming the Bible between the reality of eternity and the experience of time, in order that the most important transaction might take place in the life of the individual. I think what I'm saying is we've lost confidence in the scriptures. The emphasis today seems to be focused on, do you feel good about yourself? No, you don't feel good about yourself. We'll come in here and we'll entertain you. Because if you don't entertain, if we don't entertain you and tick your boxes, you just head off to the next place down the road and they'll do it. And so you see, in the light of what Paul is telling Timothy here, we cannot, we dare not be men pleasers. We can't change the message. We have to faithfully preach or proclaim the word regardless of the cost. Paul himself in Acts chapter 24 is a classic example of this, isn't it? You know, in Acts 24 that we read earlier, Paul is brought before Felix and Drusilla. Drusilla, the Jewess, um, they sent, obviously, for, for Paul. They wanted to listen to him preach. What did he preach about? 
we read it, he preached about faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Because it's the only thing to speak about. It's the only thing to proclaim. Why would you use your time talking about something else? You know, if you're a dying man confronting dying men and women, if your life has been transformed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you know that it's appointed unto men and women once to die, and after this the judgment, if you know that God has set a day when he will judge the living and the dead and separate the sheep from the goats, Surely you wouldn't go into that context and simply try to engrace yourself to Felix and his wife. Surely you wouldn't go in there and say, well, you know, Felix, a bit of misunderstanding between the Jews and myself. You heard him the other day. You know, we could get it sorted. If you would just uh, look at the evidence, um, you can let me go and I'll be out of here. I'll be on my way and I'll get in track preaching the gospel again. He doesn't do that. What does he do? Instead, he speaks to them about faith in Jesus Christ, and he had a three-point sermon. Felix, history tells us. Felix uh, stole Drusilla from her husband by the aid of a Cypriot magician by by the name of Simon. They were living in an adulterous relationship. And Paul stands up and he says, my first point is this, righteousness. Like Psalm 1, isn't it? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, or stands in the way of sinners, or sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates night and day. And Felix, as Paul talks about righteousness, Well, Felix is saying, okay, we'll skip that point. You know, move on to the next one. Paul says, okay, second point. Self-control. Felix is thinking, well, perhaps you shouldn't emphasize too much of that in the present company. Just get to your third point. Not a problem. I want to preach to you about judgment to come. You see, he didn't mince his words, didn't he? There's no equivocation in, in any of these matters. There can't be. You know, the times that we're living in are too perilous. The depths of human depravity is too deep. And the means of proclamation is too serious and too powerful. To clown around with anything else than the sufficiency of Scripture. We seek to preach Christ and him crucified. Sufficient for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ is the word that we uh, proclaim uh, from the scriptures. We want to see men and women and boys and girls brought to salvation. We want to be praying to that end for the Holiday Bible Club uh, this coming Thursday. That they would see and children would see. That the scriptures are sufficient for salvation because they tell us about the Savior.